Turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, so that is in your New Testament after the four Gospels and Acts, you'll find Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, and Galatians. And you, you need to open your Bible. So if you did not bring a Bible, then please grab that red Bible in front of you. It's a different version from the one I'm reading in, but it will suffice. Uh, so read in your Bibles Galatians chapter 5. Again, it's in the New Testament, after the Gospels, then Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians. And you're going to need to see for yourself what God is saying. Because again, you didn't come here to hear me. You came here to hear from God, which means you need to check me against the Scripture. So let us hear from the Lord in Galatians chapter 5. We're going to read the whole chapter. We're going to read all the way to 6.10. So if you were thinking, uh, as was announced last week, that this message is on the fruit of the Spirit, I have to confess, actually, it's not. Because you think you're going to preach one thing, and then you get to studying, and God shows you other things. And you're like, well, I think this is what we've got to talk about. Since we are covering Galatians chapter 5, verses one, uh, verse 1 through 6, verse 10, um, we're not covering at all with the same level of depth. We're going to leave out some verses altogether from talking about them. But we do have a chat after the service. And if you want to ask me about castration, which is in this passage, you feel free. But, <laughs> but we're not going to cover that verse in the, in, in the message itself. Yeah. So, now, without further ado, let us look to God and His Word. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, 
Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. One who is taught in the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will, from the flesh, reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Thank God for the privilege of hearing from him. Let's pray again. Dear God, we come to you confessing that in and of ourselves, we are flesh. We are inadequate to fulfill your righteous standard. And we confess that apart from you, because of our sin, our flesh has impulses that lead in the wrong direction. And we confess that we need you to intervene in our lives to change this. We confess our own inadequacy. And we thank you for the truth of the gospel. We thank you for what Jesus did for us on the cross. And we ask, Father, that everything we do, every effort towards godliness would be based on that gospel reality. We thank you for the Spirit that you have sent to us to empower us to live like Christ. We ask, Lord, that you would increase our understanding of your word this morning as we look into it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So today we are almost exclusively going to be in Galatians chapter 
5 and 6, but I do need to give a quick overview of this book called Galatians. It's one of Paul's earliest letters, and it is written to churches in the region of Galatia. It's an unusually urgent letter for Paul because the gospel is at stake. The good news of the gospel is at stake, and therefore the reader's eternal destiny is at stake. Flip back a few pages. We're just going to look at a few select verses in Galatians to set the context. Paul, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, do I hear turning? I hope I hear turning. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, I am astonished, Paul says, that you were so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so say I now again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Dude! In many of Paul's letters, he starts off with praise, a doxology to the Lord. In Galatians, he starts off with a bare-knuckled swing. Right? Like, he's taking the gloves off at verse 6. The problem is that there are some in Galatia who are troubling the people. We call these people the Judaizers. Because, as we learn from the letter, I'm not going to look at everything today, they were trying to persuade the Galatians to accept circumcision, which is the sign of the Mosaic Covenant where the male foreskin is removed. They were trying to persuade the Galatians to accept circumcision requirements of the Mosaic law in order to be justified before God, to be declared righteous, to have a right standing before God. The Judaizers were saying, you need to accept circumcision, the requirements of the law. And Paul doesn't see this as some kind of abstract theological problem where we can just kind of sit down and chew the fat, talk, talk about it over coffee. This isn't some arcane theological debate. Um, This is something where if you preach otherwise, Paul says, let you be damned. I don't care if you're an angel from heaven. I don't care if you're an apostle. I don't care if you're a pastor. I don't care if you style yourself as the Pope. If you preach something different from that gospel, let you be damned. Right? Paul doesn't start off this letter with the blessing of bless, bless God. He starts it off with the curse to anyone who preaches a different gospel, which would not be a gospel at all. It would be a false gospel, a false message, a false hope, and damnable. So Paul's not playing around here in Galatians. Now, let's look again at Galatians. Let's look further at Galatians 2, verse 16, just setting the stage here. I'm going to read for you Galatians 2.16. Go ahead and turn if you need to. Paul says, We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ Jesus and not by works of the law. Can't get any clearer than that. To be justified, to be acquitted, to be vindicated, to have a right standing before God, 
You must turn to Jesus Christ in faith that he is sufficient to give you a right standing before God. And we'll look a little bit at how that happens. But Paul doesn't just say, look to Jesus. He adds a negative. He says, you can't look at works of the law. Why not? Because it's impossible. He says, by the works of the law, no flesh is going to be justified. The Protestant reformers, like Martin Luther, applied this directly to Roman Catholicism, and they applied it rightly to Roman Catholicism because this principle applies to any attempt by man to gain a righteous standing before God on the basis of his own works. If you try to gain a right standing with God on the basis of your works, you will be uh, tried and found wanting and you will be damned to hell. You will not have a righteous standing before God on the basis of your works. Don't try it. So how is it that we have a right standing before God? What does this faith in Jesus Christ mean? Is it just some kind of new work where like, I'm just going to like be yay Jesus? No. The faith in Jesus Christ is the faith in who he is and what he did as sufficient for you. And to get a quick summary of that, and again, it's just a summary. Flip ahead if you need to. For me, it's on the same page. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. And we'll read to verse 14. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Okay, what did God pronounce in the garden when we disobeyed? A curse. There's a curse on sinners. And those who rely on works of the law actually are under a curse too. Why? For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So we're going to fill this in a little bit. If you look at the law, it's an all or nothing proposition. If you use the law to establish your own righteousness, if you fail in any respect, Paul is quoting from Leviticus here, cursed is everyone who doesn't do everything. James and Paul are on the same page here. James says that if you are guilty in one point, you are guilty in all. So if you face God through the law, you must be perfect. And if you think you manage to do it perfectly, you're deluded. You're deluded. Now it is evident, verse 11, that no one is justified by God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Well, when did Jesus hang on a tree? When he died on the cross. When he said such things as, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And such things as, it is finished. What was Jesus doing there? He was bearing the awful weight of sin. 
He was bearing the curse on sin. He was bearing God's wrath on sin. He was bearing the wrath that you and I deserved when He suffered on the tree. When He suffered on the cross. He was bearing God's wrath. So when we turn to Jesus Christ in faith, we're not just saying, yay, Jesus. We're saying, I need someone to bear God's wrath that I deserve. So that in Christ Jesus, verse 14, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So we don't need a way to make it up to God. We need to deal with the curse against the sin that's already on our account. And God didn't send Jesus to teach us how to make it up to God. He sent Jesus to deal with the curse. To deal with our fundamental problem, which is God's wrath. We don't benefit from this automatically. It's not that Jesus died for us and great, now we're all going to heaven. Everybody but Hitler. It's we must receive the benefits of Christ by repentance and faith. We receive the promised Spirit through faith. So that's what we mean when we talk about justification by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Okay, that's the background of Galatians. So in Galatians, Paul defends the truth and the purity of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And he says a lot more than I've summarized, of course. And at the end of Galatians chapter 4, right up before the passage that we're actually going to be looking at, Paul illustrates his point with the story of Abraham waiting on God to give Abraham a promised son. Now, Abraham and Sarah were getting old, and they got impatient. And Sarah suggested to Abraham that perhaps he should take Hagar, his, uh, her servant, as a concubine, and have a son with her. When Abraham did this, he took matters into his own hands. And he wavered in his belief in God's promise to provide a son in his own time, which God did eventually in Isaac. And so Paul uses Hagar, the servant woman, as a picture of slavery to the law. And he uses Sarah as a picture of the gospel as God's promise and his power to keep it all by himself. God didn't need Abraham's clever ploy or clever trick to help him out. God was able to do it all. Provide a son for Abraham. And so, through that picture, Paul describes gospel-believing Christians. He says, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. And so Paul uses that statement that we're not, picture, we're not children of the slave woman like Hagar. We're not slaves to the law, but we're children of the free woman. We have a gospel freedom. And he uses that word freedom as a kind of jumping off point to begin a new section 
of his, of his letter here. So now we arrive where our reading began today. For freedom, Christ has set us free. That is a statement of the gospel. It's a way of summarizing all of Galatians up till now. It's not the only way of summarizing Galatians up till now, but it is a way of summarizing Galatians. What did Christ do for us? He set us free. What did he set us free from? He set us free from sin. Galatians 1.4 says that Christ came to deliver us from this present evil age. But he also came to set us free from this sense that we need to perform the law to gain a right standing before God. In Galatians uh, 2, it talks about the Judaizers coming to spy out your freedom. They didn't like this freedom. Why? Because they thought the law was necessary to gain a right standing with God. But not being enslaved to the law is a kind of freedom. So Christ set us free from sin, Galatians 1-4, and from the burden of self-justification, Galatians 2-4. And Paul says we need to stand firm in this freedom. Now what kind of standing is this? This isn't standing waiting for the 18 bus on your phone, just kind of standing there. Stand firm is a military sort of term. You got to hold your ground. Now, if Paul is telling you, you got to stand firm in this freedom, and he's using a military analogy, why might he be doing that? Because the human heart is tempted to give up that ground. Because the human heart is tempted away from that freedom. Part of our sin and our rebellion against God is a pride. And part of that pride feels deep down that surely there's got to be something I can do to distinguish myself from the unwashed masses. <laughs> right? There's that sense that, that I need to do something to make God like me, to make me stand out. But the standing firm is, you stand firm in the freedom that Christ has delivered you from that. He's already done everything you need to justify you before God. And he sent, we'll learn later, he sent the Spirit to sanctify you before the Lord as well. So for freedom, Christ has set us free is not a duh sort of statement. What Paul is saying is that the entire point of what Jesus has done is to free you. So live like it. Live a life of Christian freedom, free from the anxiety that if I mess up today, God is going to love me less. Freedom from the anxiety, freedom from the pride that thinks I did well today, and surely God's going to love me more. It's the freedom from being so tied 
to our own performance that our emotional state goes up and down with how we're doing. Paul says to stand firm in that freedom. He says, don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Well, what does that mean? So Paul keys in on the possibility, verse 2, that the Galatians would accept circumcision. Now, is Paul concerned with the mere physical act of circumcision? Can we answer that from the text? Well, look at verse 3. He says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision. So he's addressing a group of people. Who's the people? The people who will accept circumcision. But then he says in verse 4, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. So do you see how he's addressing this group and he's describing them in two different ways? One of them is accepting circumcision. One of them is this desire to be justified by the law. So it's not the mere act of circumcision, because Paul was cool with Jews continuing to be circumcised. What he is objecting to is using circumcision as kind of a leverage point to say, unless you're circumcised, you don't have a right standing before God. As the kind of the leading edge of, of, um, of accepting the entire Mosaic law as a means for being justified before God, of having a right standing before Him. And the Judaizers were saying to the Galatians, they were unsettling them by saying, unless you become Jewish and get circumcised and perform the law, then you're not going to be justified. But surely this is a minor point of theology, right? The Galatians still had Jesus, right? They were still Christians. They were just saying, you know what, we're going we're gonna to go that extra step to like really firm this up here, and we're going to accept circumcision too. Is that, is that how Paul feels about this? No. He says, verse 2, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. And we talked about this in Sunday school for some reason when I was finishing up a few weeks ago. This is why Protestants don't budge on faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone. And if you're Catholic, we love you. We're glad you're here. But we don't want you to be Catholic. Because if you think that purgatory is going to contribute to your eventual standing in the presence of God, if you think your jumping through the hoops of one or more sacraments is going to have some bearing on your standing before God, if you think any measure of your performance is going to have some bearing on your final standing before God, Galatians 5.2 says to you, Christ will profit you nothing. And Paul is not going to budge on that. He's warning the Galatians here. He's doing them a service by telling them, you are not safe. 
by stepping away from Christ and trying to add to Christ circumcision or the law because by by giving up the all-sufficiency of Christ, you've given up this all-or-nothing sort of principle of the all-sufficiency of Christ. All-sufficiency means all-sufficiency. And we've already covered that the law itself is an all-or-nothing sort of principle, right? We did that in Galatians 3, 10 through 14, so I won't beat it again, but verse uh, 3, he says, I testify again, every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Now, humans, sinful humans, don't like binaries. We like to grade ourselves on a scale. We like to throw out this idea of being good enough, figure there's kind of some kind of grading on a curve, then we look around and we find someone who's doing worse than us and say, well, I must be all right. Right? Like that's how the psychology of the human heart under sin works. And what Paul, Paul basically pulls out the supports from that and says, no, it's all or nothing. You either keep the whole law or you've, or you've blown it. And anyone, Galatians 3 says, who doesn't keep the whole law is under a curse. So what Paul doesn't want the Galatians to do is to leave this principle, this faith, this confidence in Christ alone. Verse 4 says, you are severed from Christ you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Now, a lot of people take this as saying, oh, well, you could sin enough to lose your salvation, when really, Paul is saying the opposite. He's saying that works will never be a principle for salvation. Ergo, you must cling to the principle of grace. Do not abandon the confidence that God's grace is sufficient. So falling from grace is a, a complete swapping out of principles. And if you completely, in your heart, swap out principles, then you're not really connected to Christ, and you're not really a believer, and you're not really justified, because you've abandoned your true hope. Does that make sense? It's an all-or-nothing sort of binary. And what do you have if you maintain your connection to Christ? Verse 5, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Now in English, our word hope usually means I hope it will be sunny tomorrow, where we're not at all certain. One of those rougher points when translating the Greek to the English. But in Greek, the word for hope means a confident expectation. And you can see that in this passage because Paul talks about not knee-knocking dread. He talks about eager anticipation. I tell you that as a Christian, you can be more certain of where you'll be a hundred years from now than you can be of where you are this afternoon. 
Do you get that? Tomorrow, this afternoon, you may be at home eating lunch, or you may be in the morgue with a toe tag. Right? Like, we have no idea where we're going to be this afternoon. But if you're a Christian, you have a confident hope that looks forward to righteousness, God's final declaration over you at the judgment, and you're finally being with just men made perfect. That's your hope. You'll stand before God, as McShane says, clothed in beauty, not your own. You'll have the righteousness of Christ imputed to you, and you will be righteous. You will be set free from even the desire to sin. You can eagerly await for the hope of righteousness with God someday. Wow. We can look forward to that day. We can be certain. If you don't have that hope, what's your psychology going to look like? If you think you've got to be good enough before God, what's that going to look like? You're going to be miserable. You're going to be constantly comparing yourself to other people. You're going to get defensive when someone points out sin in your life. You're going to be weary with your own failures. You're going to be despairing when you blow it. But Paul describes a confident expectation. And he says, stand firm in that freedom. Don't give up that gospel promise. And this is a big deal. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, Paul says in verse 9, which again is why we warn Catholics not to rely on the sacraments or a few Hail Marys or whatever it is that you may think, or you're just your good deeds. You're working in a soup kitchen or you're helping an old lady across the street, or you're putting up with your cranky boss. Or, like, like, that's not changing your status with God. And if you think it is, that is a leaven that is going to lead you away from Christ and His all-sufficiency. Now, Paul says something fascinating in verse 1. He says, don't submit again to a yoke of bondage. Now, wait a minute. These are Galatian Christians. They're not principally Jews. They don't have a background in the law. Ah, but everybody's under that yoke of bondage. That yoke of bondage is slavery to sin and slavery towards some principle of self-vindication. Even atheists want a reason to feel right and good about themselves. So even atheists who have no sense of, no, no, they don't admit God, we're made in God's image. We're made to have a right relationship with him. And so even an atheist will pervert that fundamental need to be rightly related to God and they'll use it for in some, some measure of self-justification. There are ethical atheists, of course. Most, you know, atheists aren't going to tell you it's, it's okay to kick sand on someone at the beach, right? Atheists are ethical, by and large. 
and they have reasons to boast in themselves. But Paul says that that is a yoke of slavery. So why can Christians eagerly await for the hope of righteousness? Verse 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Now, now this faith working through love isn't like some kind of new work that God wants us to perform. You just got to believe enough, and as, as long as you believe enough, you're going to make it to heaven. Faith is what makes us sons of God. Galatians, actually, let's turn there. Galatians 3.26. 3.26 says, For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So faith is not a work that we perform. It's a confidence in Christ that brings Christ near to us and Christ makes us to be sons of God. And God sends His Spirit into us crying, Abba, Father. And we relate to God as sons. And when faith counts for something, bringing us into into relationship with Christ, in union with Christ, all those other things that we may measure ourselves by, circumcision, uncircumcision, don't count for anything. And the best way to say this is that there's nothing you can do to make God love you any more than he already does. When he says we are sons of God by faith, that's the position we work from. We don't relate to God as slaves. We relate to God as sons. I'm going to read from that eminent theologian Shailin in his, his rap song about the love of God, which when I get discouraged, I just, you know, plug in some Shailin and it's like the densest theology you'll get in the space of a minute. So uh, I won't even attempt to replicate his cadence, but Perhaps the most misunderstood aspect of this subject of God's love would be the love of God that he has towards the elect. And the second some people hear that, they get mad, but it's a special kind of love. Uh, They get mad inside, but it's a special kind of love the husband has for his bride. It's a love that distinguishes her and sets her apart. No other woman could ever have the same effect on his heart. Because this groom is not adulterous, this marriage has no openness. His devotion is traced back to when the world was motionless. In love, we were predestined for adoption as a son, not for anything that we've done. Check Ephesians chapter 1. Look, when we lived as God's opponents, he gave his only son for atonement. So we've got to see he can't possibly love us any more than he does this moment. In love, he justified us. In love, he sanctifies us. So we don't have to jump through hoops to try to make him like us. One thing we truly cannot fathom, we're stunned. The father loves us with the very love he has for the son. Do you see that? If God loved you when you were a sinner, estranged from him, when he counted you as an opponent, what, and he loved you and gave Christ for you, what makes you think he's going to stop loving you based on some kind of sin in your life? Right? What makes you think that his love is, if he loved you from eternity, past, 
knowing everything about your life, what makes you think that God's love towards you is going to kind of rise and fall based on your behavior? It's simply not true. And so we confidently await for the hope of righteousness because we know that God's love is an unwavering sort of love that makes all these works not not relevant to determine our relationship with him. Now, before we proceed to verses 13 following, I want you to understand that Paul doesn't proceed with his discussion of sanctification until he nails this down. Because you can't be the kind of person that God wants you to be until you're truly confident of God's love for you and of the power that he's extended towards you regardless of your performance. You need to be the kind of person who is secure in the love of God, in the free grace of God. Thinking ethically is pointless apart from the promised spirit and grace of God. So far, so good? We're more or less skipping 7 through 12. Let's go on to chapter 13. So in verse 1, Paul had said, for freedom, Christ sets us free. In verse 13, Paul returns to that theme of freedom. And now he's making an advance. So chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, was really trying to stick it to say, don't lose the message I gave you in chapters 1 through 4. In chapter 5, verse 13, he's returning to the theme of freedom And then he says, only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So now we're taking a step forward in our thoughts. Um, Sorry, I realized that I skipped an entire section when I began the sermon where I was giving you the outline of this, so we're just going to kind of work it in as we go. Um, 5.13 for you who are called to freedom, brothers, only do not lose your freedom as, use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you should love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Paul is not doing here what he does in Romans, for those of you who are familiar with Romans. He's not contemplating an objection. Oh, you know, if I believed that salvation is entirely by grace, I could live like I wanted to. Your salvation by grace is just an opening for libertinism. You could go live like what you want. He's not hitting that objection head on, but he is anticipating what may be a real question that the Galatians have. Now, uh, try to climb inside the Galatians' head here. If you're, if, if you're Jewish, or if you're being informed by Jews, that the law is how we relate to God, that it's our ethical guidance, and you're told, no, the law doesn't justify you before God, you may be wondering, well, 
how do I build an ethical life without the law? It may be just a, a valid concern. Well, now what? If I don't have the law, how do I conduct my life? So Paul in 5.13 through like the end of the chapter is going to give two sorts of answers. One is love, and the other is the Holy Spirit. But before we proceed to that, we need to look at the paradox here. Do you see the paradox? There's two paradoxes. Two paradoxes. That if we try to resolve the paradoxes, I think it's going to be very rewarding. Paradox number one. For you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Do you know what that word serve means? Is? Yeah. Act as a slave. Paul, come now. You just told us in 5.1, don't submit again to a yoke of bondage. And now you're telling us to act as slaves towards each other. Then, he says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul, you just told us that we shouldn't seek to be justified by the law. And now you're trying to show us how to fulfill the law. Paul, what are you doing here? Stop confusing us. But when you look at what Paul is saying, Paul is setting us into an entirely different relationship to God and to one another and to the law. The law as a principle of being justified by God is hopeless. But the law still is a picture of what God wanted people to look like all along. God created people in His image to look like Him and to project His character onto human society in the course of history. We're still supposed to look like God. Now the law condemns us because we don't do that. And yet that doesn't mean that the law is not, as Paul says in Romans 7, holy and righteous and good. Now for your homework, go home and read Romans 6 through 8. Because Galatians is an early letter of Paul. And Paul probably had lots of dialogue about it. And when we get to Romans, we see Paul treating some of these points even more thoroughly than he does here. So go ahead and read Romans 6 through 8 on your own. I will refer to it a couple times as we go. But the law is still a good picture. Paul doesn't say here, you gotta dot your I's and cross your T's and do the law as a principle of justification. He says, you're going to fulfill it. And the law does have an end, a telos, a goal of showing us what a godly society would look like, what people in God's image would act like. 
And what Paul is saying is that if you, I'm getting ahead of myself here, by the power of the Spirit, love one another, then by doing that, you will hit the target that the law was aiming for in the first place. Does that make sense? So Romans 13 says, whoever loves fulfills the law. Because as Jesus taught in Matthew 22, and as the law before it taught in Deuteronomy 6, and uh, Leviticus, uh-oh, help me out, you should love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19 as well, you should love your neighbor as yourself. The law does instantiate love for God and neighbor. Now, Paul is mostly and selectively here focusing on love of neighbor. So Paul's not being exhaustive in his description of ethics here. He's, he's selecting what is important for the Galatians to hear, and we'll just follow him in that. We know that there's more that can be said about love, about love of God and so on and so forth, but Paul is just here giving us a selection. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that, that goal, and when we obey it, that fulfills what the law was aiming for. And we are to serve one another, and that is now a voluntary service. If we're going to love like God, if God wants us to look like him, that kind of love is an overflowing love that doesn't think transactionally, that doesn't keep score, that actually delights in seeing the well-being of another. You shall love your neighbor as yourself defines a high standard of naturalness. If you get cold, you put a sweater on. You don't have to think long and hard about the right thing to do when you get cold. It's instinctive to you. We are supposed to be attentive to others' needs to the same degree that we are attentive to our own needs. We are to be as responsive to others' needs as we are responsive to our own needs. So through love, we are to voluntarily serve one another. This is Jesus. This is foot washing. Jesus got up from the table and he knelt down and he washed each other's feet. He wasn't thinking of his status. He was thinking of others. And gospel freedom transforms you to think about others. It's inconceivable that you would use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Gospel freedom frees you to love other people as you ought. Without worrying about your performance, without worrying about what they think of you, you just serve one another in love. From verse 15, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. We, we conjecture, we don't know, that maybe the Galatians had a problem with factionalism, and we, we get this from other aspects of the passage, like verse 26, we'll get there in a moment. I'm not going to touch much more on verse 15. 
So Paul has said, hey, stand in your freedom. And I'm going to add to that when we're not using our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but we're loving one another. Paul goes on to say, we need to walk in the spirit. So I neglected, because I jumped in at the wrong spot in my notes, to give you the title of this message. You're getting it now. (laughs) Stand in your freedom, walk in the spirit. So if you look at Paul talking about our two responses to freedom, one, standing firm in it, not, not giving up that freedom, and then verse 13 following, truly appropriating that freedom by not abusing it, but by living it out, then we can use the two verbs that reference your body's position and motion, stand firm and walk, okay? Now that walk there comes from, it's used throughout uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament for just a, a word for conduct your life. How do I live my life. The King James English for that is your conversation, your manner of life. So we stand firm in our freedom, but then we walk in the Spirit. And I'm going to go ahead and, no, never mind. We'll get there in a minute. We are supposed to stand firm in the Spirit, uh, stand firm in our freedom and walk in the Spirit. Um, How do we conduct our life? So, So now we have an imperative. Walk in the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's an imperative, right? It's a command. But it's also a promise, an assurance It's emphatic in the Greek. Walk in the Spirit and you will by no means gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, this is not a clickbait headline. Have you seen those clickbait headlines? Lose 70 pounds in one month with this weird trick. Right? Oh, this is just the Christian secret, right? Like, everyone, just walk in the Spirit. That's the secret, right? He's not revealing this this trick or this secret. He is turning the focus of the Galatians and telling them, conduct your conduct under the power of what the Holy Spirit has done for you. Christ has sent you the promised Spirit, and the Spirit, okay, here goes. The Spirit is a new principle, a new motivation, and a new power to do what is right. I'm going to return to that in a moment to hit on it again. But Paul is taking the Galatians and saying, look, you were concerned that without the law, You wouldn't know how to live your life. I'm telling you that actually, if you walk by the Spirit, if you conduct your life in the Spirit, you won't fulfill the desires of the flesh. 
Now, he doesn't call this an easy trick. Why do I say that? Well, let's keep reading. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So the flesh in the Bible means many things. It can mean just our flesh and blood, the physical stuff. It can mean us in our humanness and our frailty. It can mean us apart from God. And then it can mean us who, when we are sinners and are apart from God, that means that our impulses inevitably lead us to sin, right? If you're born a sinner, your natural impulses, the impulses of the flesh, are opposed to God. And that's the use of the word flesh that Paul is employing here in these verses, Galatians 5, 17 through 17. The flesh is always there with you, opposing the spirit. The impulses of the flesh oppose the spirit, and the spirit opposes the flesh. I read this in light of Romans 7, where Paul finds in himself a war of principles. And I also read this in light of Romans 7, where the true I, the true you, if you have been given the promised spirit, is the one who ultimately wants to do the right thing. The true you, when you've been transformed by Christ, now wants the right thing. But that wanting of the right thing is not easy because the flesh is there. And so you can't do the things that you want to do. Now, that's hard. And it runs contrary to what the world says because it says the problem is inside you. The devil didn't make you do it. Your spouse didn't make you do it. Your mother didn't make you do it. Your bad upbringing didn't make you do it. Nothing made you do it. You're fleshly. The, thing, the reason you're... Th- those catalysts out there showed what was in there. And on the inside, you've got, you've got the flesh. And we see that because you got the works of the flesh. And Paul gives us a grocery list of the works of the flesh. What's the grocery list of the works of the flesh? 19, the works of the flesh are evidence, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, this uncontrolled uh, uh, idolatry towards things of the body. Idolatry and sorcery, so it's a paganism. Social relations, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger. When we blow up at one another, when we can't be happy until we have what the other guy has or we feel like we've arrived. Drunkenness and orgies and things like these. Now, Paul doesn't spend time arguing that these things are sins. He doesn't give a lecture as to why you shouldn't get drunk and have sex with four people at once. He just just assumes that, right? This is, he's not making an argument. He, he assumes the Galatians know it. So what's he saying? He's calling these works of the flesh that come from within you. Um, but then he goes on to describe the works of the Spirit. 
He says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, I want to ask you a question about this passage. Have we arrived at more imperatives, more commands, when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit? Look at the text. Are there imperatives? Is Paul saying, hey, you've got to be peaceful. You've got to be faithful. Think about that. Paul gave us an imperative way back in verse 16, and then he just abandons the imperative altogether, and he's right back to indicatives. He's right back to describing realities. And I find this fascinating. When I did a study on Ephesians, you can't make a neat divide in the book of Ephesians that says, okay, chapters 1 through 3 are doctrine, and 4 through 6 are application. It never happens in Ephesians. He's const- Paul post- constantly goes back and forth between describing realities, describing God's purposes, and telling us, this is how you fit in to what God is doing. So what I want to impress on you from Galatians 5, 16 through 24, is just how much of that is a description of a new reality, a new dynamic. For the believer, yes, the flesh is there. And so there is an active command. you got to walk in the Spirit, which means a constant determination and constant steps taken to appropriate the power of the Spirit that God has given you by the ordinary means of grace of reading the Word, praying, being among God's people, hearing the Word preached, and provoking each other to love and good works. But that dynamic of flesh and Spirit is, is, is with us. But what Paul is saying is that when you have the, the Spirit, then the natural fruit of the Spirit's work in you is this whole panoply of love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faithfulness and meekness and self-control. And I know I'm mixing translations, but you, you get the idea. And again, that's not an exhaustive list of Christian character. It is a description of things that are appropriate for the Galatians to know. Because if we suspect that the Galatians are given to factions, if we suspect that the Galatians are given to backbiting, if we suspect that the Galatians are given to conceit and self-congratulation and thinking that they're something when they're nothing, then these fruit of the Spirit, this fruit of the Spirit, these fruits, you get the idea. Um, These are the appropriate characteristics that Paul would like the, the Galatians to understand. If you've got the Spirit working in you, then de facto you are going to grow in the character which meets the law's demands. And Paul is persuading the Galatians of the Efficiency of the new reality that comes with the gospel and the Spirit of God given to his people. 
And yes, it is worth it to do an entire message or Sunday school lesson on just the fruit of the Spirit and what they mean. Because there's plenty that can be said about those individual traits. And you will sigh in relief when I tell you that I'm not going to give you nine points of application now on the fruit of the Spirit. But Paul repeatedly sets forth the Christian reality as an attraction. It's supposed to be attractive. It's supposed to excite your desire. You are supposed to want the fruit of the Spirit in your life because you know that against such things, there's no law. If the Spirit develops this character in you, you know that you are keeping the law. As many as are under the Spirit are not under the law. They're not under the law as a cursing agent because you have salvation by grace in Jesus Christ. God saved you not for any good that you had done, but in His mercy He saved you. And He gave you the Spirit because He he doesn't want to just save you from his wrath. He wants to make you like him because he delights in seeing his people reflect him. And he's on your side and he's giving you what you need in the spirit to produce this fruit in you. And so as humans, we constantly think that what we need is more instruction. If only I had a tome on how to be peaceful and how to be more loving. And yes, there are ways in which it's appropriate to study and think and be careful about how best I can love other people and how best I can cultivate joy in my life and how I can develop the discipline of long-suffering when people are getting on my nerves and so on and so forth. But what we don't, we don't so much need new instruction as we need that new principle, that new motivation, and that new power. And Paul doesn't develop it here so much as he does in Romans, but I'm going to state it here. The law by itself is insufficient to create this character, as long as the law remains a written word out there, an external word of encouragement to us, we can't perform it. And Romans 8.3 says that what the law couldn't do through the weakness of the flesh, God has done by giving us his spirit. So again, your homework, read Romans 6-8 through 8 and you'll see what I'm saying. That's, that's your afternoon reading, okay? Romans 6-8. through 8. Got it? Romans 6-8. through 8. So, what we not we don't need more instruction. We and, and, and the law is a good picture that we can study for how to shape our lives. And there's plenty of good instruction in the New Testament about how to shape our lives. But our principal need isn't new instruction. It's a new principle, a new motivation, and a new power. And if you seek to sanctify yourself based on your own ingenuity and your own works and your own principles, you will be dashed up again and again against your own self-sufficiency because you ain't getting rid of that flesh. It's not going anywhere. 
But Paul speaks of the reality of the gospel. In Galatians 2.20, he says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And he says it in sort of the passive tense there. I am crucified with Christ. When Christ died, you died with him. There is a definitive death to sin. Romans 6 talks about this too. Again, your homework, Romans 6. Christ put to death sin. Or or, or sin was put to death in Christ. You died with Christ. You were buried with Christ. Everything about you that matters, that determine, that, that the determinative aspect of you now is your union with Jesus Christ. And so Galatians 2.24, I'm going to take a slight shade of, of difference here because it says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And I would like to put it this way, that at the moment that you were converted, if indeed you were converted, when you repented of your sins and you turned from your sin and you turned from your own self-serving righteousness and you turned to Christ and you turned to him in faith, you crucified the flesh because you clung to faith by Christ. You, you clung to Christ by faith. Sorry, I'm, I'm The oxygen is probably running low here, and I am misspeaking. You clung to Christ by faith, and by doing so, you agreed with God about your flesh. You agreed with God about the all-sufficiency of Christ, and in a sense, you too put to death that flesh. It's passions and desires. They don't have power over you anymore. You have new power to live out the fruit of the Spirit. One step further in Paul's argument, and we will wrap up, and this does not take long. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step by the Spirit. And I would submit to you that now we're actually getting around to some of the application. (laughs) If we live by the Spirit, actually points back to everything from 5.16 to 5.24. Life in the Spirit is your life walking in the Spirit. Paul assumes that believers live according to this new reality. You've been set free from sin. You've been set free from law-keeping. You're not using your liberty as an occasion for the flesh. You're serving one another through love. You're walking in the Spirit. Now, if that's the case, let's keep in step with the Spirit. And and if your translation says walk there again, it obscures the fact that it's a new word, which means get in line, line up like like an army would form ranks. Keep in step with the Spirit. Live consistently with the Spirit. So what does that look like? Here's, Here's the application. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying another one another. So what what does keeping in step with the Spirit look like? The first thing it looks like is a transformed attitude toward other people. I love the King James here and wish that we did not do away with the word that it uses to translate the Greek. The Greek word comes from kenos, empty, and doxa, glory. And the King James translation is vainglorious, empty glory. Human glory is empty glory. It's conceit. And I would correlate that with 
so chapter 6, verse 3, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let us not become conceited. If you understand all the gospel realities that I won't repeat now, but we've talked about today, the last thing you will do is feel conceited towards fellow believers. You will not provoke each other. You won't punch down and beat up on them. You won't envy each other. You, know, you won't pull down. You won't feel insecure at the success of another. What you want is the spiritual well-being of everyone. And you delight when others are doing well before the Lord. We don't have empty glory. We have a consciousness of the reality that apart from the intervention of God and His Spirit, we are nothing. And that changes us. How does it change us? It changes us with how we deal with sin. Look at verse six, chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Why does Paul pick that? When do you most need the fruit of the Spirit? When you're dealing with other sinners. When do you most need the fruit of the Spirit? When you're dealing with someone else who has sinned. You need to love that person where you genuinely have a desire to see that person right with God. You need to approach that person with joyful confidence that the gospel can change hearts and minds. You need to love the peace that results when conflict and reconciliation occur. You need to have long-suffering. Oh, yeah. You need to have patience because that person is going to take two steps forward and one step back. That person is going to bite back at you and make excuses. You need patience. You need to have um, kindness that reaches out beyond yourself. You need to have goodness and faithfulness. This is a, we're in it for the long haul. Ministry with one another day in and day out takes faithfulness. Are you committed to one another or not? Are you in each other's lives or not? Are you going to be faithful to the membership vows that you took? Um, uh, sorry, I'm uh, faithfulness. You're going to be gentle. Oh boy. Are you going to lay down the law and tell them what they need to do? Or are you going to shape your words, your body language, the opportunities that you use to actually try to make room for the Spirit to do His work? Oh, we fail in gentleness when we think that we can beat another believer into cooperation. You know, he's not, he's not cooperating. Yell louder. Not going to work. <laughs> Never going to work. And it's wrong anyway. 
Um, gentleness, self-control. Now this, this, this isn't self-control of I feel good about myself because I managed to keep control over myself. It's not stoicism. It's a control that is self-control for the sake of the gospel. That I know that something's at stake here. It's the discipline of a soldier. We're on mission here. And one of the missions that we have is restoring people who are overtaken in a fault. Where do we see this best? Come on now. On the cross and in the whole life of Jesus. How do we see the fruit of the Spirit lived out perfectly? In Jesus. How do we see Jesus living out the fruit of the Spirit par excellence? When he came to die for sinners, but along the way, he rubbed shoulders with them. You don't think it required the fruit of the Spirit in Jesus' life to chill with Peter? With James and John saying, yeah, 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 we want the number one seat in the kingdom. Peter saying, um, you know, Lord, um, what does he say? Not, you know, even so, Lord, you're not going to go to the cross. Like the obtuseness of the disciples. The disciples who get afraid in the boat. But we actually see Jesus coming to live among sinners. And he actually seems to enjoy being in the company of sinners. He's hanging out with prostitutes and tax collectors. And we think that's all nice and cushy. But you know what? I can imagine that prostitutes and money-grubbing tax collectors probably aren't the most delightful people to be around. Right? They probably, even if they've been saved and transformed, probably have a lot of rough edges that need to get smoothed out. And yet Jesus was there. If you want to show the fruit of the Spirit, do this. Work it out by restoring people in full awareness that you too could be tempted, in full awareness that you are nothing. So we don't approach restoring each other in the flesh. We approach restoring each other with this whole new reality in view. We understand that God has brought us into his mission. 6.2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, and I scarce can take it in, that on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Jesus, again, is a burden bearer par excellence. If you want to fulfill the law of Christ, you will enter into other people's burdens, whether that's burdens of sin, burdens of anxiety, any sort of burden. Again, we're loving each other as ourselves. This fulfills the law. We're fulfilling the law of Christ. Christ came and said, he gave us a whole new principle, but he, he took the law to a whole new level when he said, love other people as I have loved. I'm going to show you how it's done. 
So we fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he's something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. We answer to God at the day of judgment for how we engage in this kind of thing. We don't answer to God by comparing ourselves to one another. This is a solemn work. God will examine how we've done it, and we will answer to him, not on the basis of works righteousness, but we will answer to him for how, he's, for how we've performed. And then lastly, um, verses 6 through following, one who is taught in the word must share all good things with the one who, who teaches. We're the kinds of people who, who understand the work of the ministry as kind of a shared burden, right? We don't pay Pastor Joseph as a transaction of like, okay, like we pay him for 40 hours of work and we get this much from him. We look at it as a sharing in the ministry. Verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. For then, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith. Paul manages to end this on a note of both solemnity and hope. Really hope. It's solemn. Because he's telling us that everything you do is sowing. And so there will be a reaping determined by the sowing. And you will either sow in line with this walk in the Spirit, or you will sow to the flesh. Let me emphasize that if you sow to the Spirit, if you cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in your life, if you seek to live out His power in your life, Paul tells you that you will reap eternal life. And what he's telling you is that all this matters. It does finally matter. It is not just a slog and then you die. It's leading somewhere. Because he says, let us not grow weary of doing well. The Christian walk is not supposed to be a slog. Although... We're tempted to feel like it is. But he's telling us that when you live in light of these realities and you don't grow weary of it, but you keep on keeping on, you can expect a harvest. And so he encourages us. What does our life look like? Let's just do good to everyone. We're going to have opportunities. Just Be on the lookout. God has given you everything you need to do good, to do lasting good, to do meaningful good. So be on the lookout for opportunities to do good to everyone. And for us here at Alney Baptist Church, it says, especially to those of the household of faith, so look around you and look for ways to do good in light of what we've heard.
Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that the gospel is truly good news, that the righteousness, our righteous standing before you, has nothing to do with our performance and everything to do with Christ's righteous life and his death on our behalf. We thank you, Father, that you've set us free from anxiety, wondering whether we've ever been good enough. We thank you that you've set us free from pride, thinking that we're sufficient in and of ourselves. We thank you that you've set us free from delusions of thinking that we're something, that we're nothing, that we're nothing. But we thank you for the gracious way that you've given us your spirit to truly empower us and to motivate us to live like Jesus Christ, to live our lives the way you always wanted them to be lived. We ask that you would uh, make that spirit known to us through your word. Let us understand his power in our lives. Help us to yield to him day in and day out. Help us to continue, not just at the time of our conversion, but daily put to death the deeds of the flesh in our lives. Help us to approach our fellow believers in the spirit of meekness and gentleness. Help us to get involved with sinful people, to love them and to restore them. Help us to bring the fruit of the Spirit to bear on such situations. Help us to live in such a way that we're always looking out for opportunities to do good to everyone around us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.